Welcome to the Project Censored Radio Show. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, your co-host, along with Mickey Huff. This week on the show, we start off the hour in conversation with Dr. David Goldfield, an historian and longtime academic who has just recently been asked to censor some of the shocking and uncomfortable aspects of his work so as to not offend anyone. And as he puts it, if you offend no one, you teach no one. Mickey, David, and I highlight the importance of never censoring the past lest we distort our present and thereby condemn our future to one built on falsehoods. In the second half of the show, I'm joined by journalist Mirna Wabi-Sabi to discuss food waste as a colonialist and capitalist paradigm, moving beyond the argument for individual responsibility for climate change and incorporating global systems in our understanding of both the problem and perhaps more importantly, the solution. All this and more coming up now on Project Censored. The ocean burn bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufactured pay for our taxes while the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. Welcome to the Project Censored radio show. We are very glad right now to be joined by Dr. David Goldfield, who is the Robert Lee Bailey Professor of History at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte, a position he has held since 1982. Born in Memphis, he grew up in Brooklyn and attended the University of Maryland. He is the author or editor of 16 books, including two prize-winning titles, Cotton Fields and Skyscrapers, and Black, White, and Southern. His most recently published books are America Aflame, How the Civil War Created a Nation, Still Fighting the Civil War, and The Gifted Generation, When Government Was Good. Goldfield also serves as a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians and as an academic specialist for the U.S. State Department, but we like him anyway. He is a he is past president of the Southern Historical Association, and he serves on the executive board of the human rights organization, the International Coalition of Sites of Conscience, and on the board of the North Carolina Civil War and Reconstruction History Center. His hobbies include reading in, cl- in case you're interested in his Tinder profile. His hobbies include reading Southern novels, watching baseball and listening to the music of Gustav Mahler and Buddy Holly. He also, in his free time, is my father. So full disclosure there. (laughs) Welcome to the show, David. Great to be here with you. So I wanted to get started um, with this because obviously folks listening to the show know that Project Censored, one of the things that we deal with uh, pretty much primarily is the issue of censorship. And the past few years has seen a rise in the push to censor history, uh, the history of the United States, a history that I might add is already censored via omission and outright whitewashing and lies. Anyone who went to school in the U.S. and heard the so-called story of Thanksgiving can relate to this. Um, But this push continues as right-wing school boards and politicians aim to bury that history uh, and thereby the present of U.S. racism because it's, quote, uncomfortable. Uh, And that's not hyperbole. Last year, Oklahoma Governor Kevin Stitt signed a bill into law barring grade schools from teaching lessons about race that may make students uncomfortable. Uh, Now, as an American historian, one that specializes in the Civil War, your entire job description focuses on the uncomfortable. Uh, And as such, you haven't been immune to this rise in censorship. Uh, So recently, your textbook publisher, Pearson, requested that you remove images of lynching 
and the publisher of your book on the Civil War, American Aflame, America Aflame, wanted you to remove some of the gory details around modern weaponry used on Civil War soldiers. So first off, can you talk about your thoughts on censoring the, quote, uncomfortable and how you're responding to this as an expert on the uncomfortable? The first day of class, I tell my students, I hope I make you uncomfortable. Because many of my students come in with preconceived notions of what American history is and the and who was important in American history and who was not important and the events themselves and how to interpret them. And I want to challenge those views. And one of the reasons why we wrote this American history textbook, which is called uh, The American Journey, uh, is that we wanted to show that at the outset of our country's history in 1776, most Americans were not part of this country in the full sense. And gradually, over the course of time, mainly from the people themselves, we broadened the definition of who is an American. And now we're at a point when that definition is once again being challenged. And so that's basically the theme of the American journey. The ultimate end of this journey, and we're far from, uh, from the conclusion, uh, I always tell my students, Sir Thomas Jefferson's wonderful words in the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. And we are still a ways away from, from that. And it hasn't been a straight line upward, uh, certainly. Uh, and we're in one of those valleys right now. And so one of the things we wanted to do uh, when we crafted the ninth edition of our American history text, The American Journey, uh, we wanted to make sure that these principles that Jefferson, a slaveholder, uh, so nobly espoused in 1776, we wanted to make them front and center. And in order to do that, we wanted to include more Black history. Because if you look at many textbooks in, in America, uh, yeah, sure, they have black history, but it's uh, slavery, uh, the Civil War, uh, maybe the Great Migration, and then uh, you know something in the 21st century, and and that's it. We wanted to take the history of Black Americans uh, from the mm -hmm. colonial period up through the present without any gaps at all, because one of the things we wanted to emphasize is that Black history has been different. Alone among all racial and ethnic groups, the history of Black people has been different in the United States. Uh, so th that's an important distinction that we wanted to, uh, uh, to emphasize. And at the same time, uh, we believed that coddling our students uh, removing them from the real serious atrocities of American history was not really what we wanted to do. 
So one of the things we did uh, in this new edition, we put in more about lynching. There is a wonderful, wonderful site uh, out of Atlanta, Georgia called withoutsanctuary.com. And they have just amazing, hor horrible uh, lynching pictures. And we included those in this, in this mm -hmm. ninth edition. And immediately, uh, we had the DEI person. And, and let me tell you, when we did the eighth edition, seventh edition, and so on, that we never had a DEI officer. DEI means, make sure I get this right, DEI means diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, and, and that's, to me, that's a very laudable goal. We want to emphasize diversity, we want to emphasize equity, and we want to emphasize inclusion. Uh, the problem is that many Americans, not only Black Americans, uh, were not part of inclusion, uh, and we're certainly not part of equity. Uh, so it's important for our students to realize that this battle that has been going on for 250 years is way far from over and we have to keep keep working on that and the best way we thought to keep working on that is to show some of the ugly facts uh, of american history now i agree with some of the dei principles for example we no longer refer to native americans in the book as indians but what they wanted us to do is when U.S. officials in the 1830s referred to Indians, we wanted to, they wanted us to change that to indigenous people. Well, well, that's not how they talked. And if we use the words of the people at the time, we can see the difference. Now, uh, some people would prefer Native Americans, but uh, we were reminded of the fact that the University of Nebraska, uh, just about six, seven years ago, uh, for entering freshmen, they uh, had this form that they fill out. And one of the forms was uh, for one of the lines was for ethnicity. And one of the um, one of the selections there was Native American. And what they discovered is that 40% of the entering freshman class identified as Native American. This is ridiculous because that's not true. And of course, the Nebraska administration realized this. When students saw Native American, they thought, well, I was born here. Uh, so we use the word indigenous. So basically what I'm saying is that some of the DEI formats are, are good. Uh, but the idea that we shouldn't shock students or that we shouldn't show the atrocities of American history uh, because this will upset some students, my response was, I hope so. Well, David Goldfield, Mickey Huff here, co-host with Eleanor Goldfield, Project Censored Show. Um, that's why I basically got into teaching history in, in college. My my day job as a, as a history professor is to really expose, I mean, what what some would call the underside or the dark side uh, of U.S. history. But my my efforts were never to denigrate 
the country or its people. My my purpose was to enlighten people to a more holistic view uh, of what the country was, and it didn't mean the same things to so many people. And I'm really curious because, um, you know, as prolific, prolific of an author and a scholar you are, we saw coming through the 1960s, 1970s, there was a shift in historiography, there was a shift in focus. We had Francis Fitzgerald, of course, we had Howard Zinn. Since then, uh, we've had esteemed colleagues of yours like Eric Foner. I still use his book, Give Me Liberty. Um, I also use Oliver Stone and Peter Kuznick's untold history of the United States to show even more through the 20th century of, of things that we really should know, um, but are often left out. So it seems that the profession and the way that history has been taught has been changing. Of course, I can't forget James Lowen, um, the, the late, great James Lowen. Um, you know, I didn't learn a lot of that stuff in college and grad school. So I ended up learning a lot of it on my own and incorporating it into my own teaching. But curiously, um, rather than that that trend seemingly continue, uh, we now see just in the last several months, there's some 70 bills pending in nearly 30 states to censor, restrict, or control the kinds of histories or narratives that that uh, allegedly college professors or certainly K-12 people are allowed to teach. So can you talk about the the, the, the latest wave, which, which really is a trend, it's certainly a troublesome one, um, but it's definitely a trend that's coming back to censor, to restrict, you know, what you said when you first started resonated so greatly with, with me. In fact, it sounds like the way I start my own classes. I'm a walking trigger warning. Uh, when you come into class, you're, you should be upset when you leave here or else I didn't do my job. Um, it's not about endorsing all these things. It's about trying to understand them and certainly not repeat them, uh, the, mo the worst elements of them. So, uh, David Goldfield, could you talk to us about your thoughts about what you see happening in the profession and in the country around censorship and history? Right. It's unfortunate, but uh, we're being battered from both the right and the left. Uh, the left uh, wants us uh, to lighten the story, uh, and the right uh, wants us to lighten the story, too, as well as to eliminate uh, some of the story. Uh, one of the things that we stress in the book, uh, The American Journey, uh, is that we're still a work in progress, uh, and it hasn't always been progress. So we keep the big picture of the promise of American life up, up front, but at the same time, we do not whitewash literally whitewash uh, American history, uh, nor uh, do we decide that, well, maybe this is too tough for the students to, uh, to grasp and they'll get upset uh, about it. You're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. Now, back to our program. David, do you uh, you had an incident or you've had experiences with publishers, with people in your career um, interfering sort of with the academic freedom of your publications? Um, have you had publishers talk to you about things that they think are too disturbing or too difficult? Um, and again, I, I'm familiar with your text, um, but what about the backstory? You know, the, uh, most most textbooks come out of a couple of states. A lot of people don't realize this. And in the U.S., that there, there's a lot of control 
in in the in the publishing industry about what gets into the books, what gets out of the books. Can you talk a little bit about some of your experiences, given again, given your uh, prolific publishing? And and American Journey is one of one, a major historical textbook for people that don't know. Right. Well, uh, the textbook market these days is uh, more limited than it used to be because you have a lot of online resources now than you did. We published our first edition in 1996. Uh, so Pearson, uh, for example, has cut their uh, their number of textbooks, but our text textbook continues to do well, uh, and it does well, uh, I, I think, because we are direct. Uh, our our job is not to tear down America, uh, nor is, is our job to celebrate America. Uh, our job is rather to tell a story uh, and wherever that story might lead us. And as part of that story, uh, we focus on both people and principles. And hopefully those principles will get through to our, uh, our people. Uh, and... Uh, it, it's quite interesting, uh, but uh, Texas, the state of Texas, uh, which is very different. You, you all heard of the uh, Texas School Book, Book Depository where uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, yeah, well, uh, Texas has this system uh, where they get all these textbooks, put them in, in, in a big warehouse and then assign them to uh, high schools. Uh, most states uh, allow individual school districts to make that uh, determination, but not in Texas. So the Texas uh, textbook industry is a $2 billion industry, and you don't want to offend a $2 billion uh, industry. So what happens is that you have textbooks out there that are perfectly accurate, uh, but they leave stuff out and they don't offend anyone. And if they don't offend anyone, no one's going to learn. And they're bland and they're uninteresting and they're boring. And nobody's really going to be interested in pursuing history. Well, so, and I would also argue that if they're leaving things out, then they're not accurate. Uh, it's, it's lying through omission, uh, you know, that you, you, you could jump over, for instance, the the years in Europe from like 1920 to like 1950 and just be like, and then there were just fewer Jews who lived there. Bummer. Like if you just omit <laughs> a bunch of things, then you're essentially lying because you are removing significant pieces of history. And, uh, you know, something that, that you actually taught me was that you don't understand your present if you don't understand your past. So I think like as a historian and some, somebody who has spent your life doing this, I, I, I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are as to what are we looking at in terms of our distorted present, but perhaps more uh, disturbingly, our potential for a very distorted and uh, frightening future when we cover up and bury the embarrassing or uncomfortable bits of our history. Well, Robert Penn Warren, the great Southern writer, and, and we use a lot of fiction in, in the book. Not that the book is fiction, but uh, I think sometimes fiction writers uh, have great insights that historians don't have. <laughs> Robert uh, Penn Warren uh, wrote that uh, uh, only out of the past can you make the present and out of the present can you make the future. In other words, the past is really, uh, really important. 
And the past has always been contentious. It's not the past, it's many pasts. And we're in one of those contentious uh, periods uh, right now uh, when these battles are, are being fought. Uh, and it's made even more fraught uh, by the fact that uh, we have the internet, which we didn't have uh, 20, 30 years ago when we first started uh, writing uh, The American Journey, uh, because that then uh, the internet is sort of an open, I was going to say sewer, but it, <laughs> it, it's a process that includes almost everything and, and anything, and it's very difficult to... Uh, to vet, uh, which makes it even more important that uh, you, uh, we're not going to tell the whole story. Uh, that's just, just impossible because we're not going to have a 10,000 page book. Uh, and we don't also don't know some things that will be revealed within the next, uh, hopefully 10, 20 years. But our objective is to tell the story whole, uh, bringing in all of the people regardless of who they were, where they lived, which is another thing. When American history textbooks were first written, and this went through the 1970s and 1980s, uh, New England was very prominent. And the rest of the country, well, civilization began in New England. Oh, yeah, well, there's some Spanish people somewhere around. Uh, and uh, maybe there were a few people in Virginia and so on. But New England, that was. And, and I remember uh, learning about um, the, about John Winthrop and religious liberty. Yeah, the Puritans were wonderful about religious liberty, but just for themselves. As we say, when they came to Massachusetts Bay, they went on their knees to thank God, and then they went on their knees to beat the Indians. Uh, so uh, Native Americans, indigenous people. Uh, so uh, I, I think that's an important corrective of, of the American journey. We give the give voice to the people of the South and, and Southwest. And the South is a very different part of the country. It's uh, more, uh, it's much more uh, African. Uh, its culture, its food, its music uh, than other parts of the country. Indeed it is. And David Goldfield, I know since you know the last 10, 20 years, we've seen a lot of changes historiographically. Uh, Darlene Clark Hines' focus on African-American Odyssey is a great example. Carol Anderson's work, uh, you know, historiographically, I think very interesting, trying to really change that trajectory. But again, while there's many of these things happening, and of course you're now in your ninth edition, um, what we see moving forward, I want to come back to this more dystopian reality of the present. Um, you know, N NPR story from a few months ago pointed this out. One law in South Carolina, sorry, proposed law, I'm not sure if it passed yet, um, prohibits teachers from discussing any topic that creates discomfort, guilt, or anguish on the basis of political belief. Now, I don't know about you. David, but a history class, I mean, that would just be like an extended remix of John Cage's 444 or whatever it is. Or, I mean, it will be a semester of silence. Um, you know, how, how, th these are real bills that, that major states are proposing that, uh, and these states, of course, as you know, have many respected, vaunted universities and scholars. What's what do you see happening here? And you're a member of many professional historical organizations and associations of educators and professors. What's the pushback? 
The pushback uh, is that uh, almost all of these uh, laws or proposed laws, as you noted in South Carolina, uh, deal with K through 12. Uh, and uh, it's uh, our responsibility in, in college to try to reorient. And, and I, I've had students come to me with some weird ideas. And, and some states, for example, uh, several years ago, the state of Alabama decided, well, well, they will, in their, how they taught American history, their textbook would begin in 1877. Therefore, you don't have to talk about slavery, right? Post Reconstruction. Not to talk about the Civil War. You can, hey, you know, th things are things are great. Uh, so uh, th this is a battle that we uh, that we have. I see it in my own students in North Carolina, uh, and uh, my colleagues who uh, teach, particularly uh, in the uh, South and, and Midwest. Uh, they're, they're confronting this as well. But the problem of this, Mickey, is that not all of these high school students are going to go to college or, or mm -hmm. community college. In fact, um, a majority won't. I think we're at something like 32, 33 percent mm -hmm. uh, attend to higher uh, institutions of learning. Uh, so they're going to go out out in the world uh, thinking these things or worse yet, not knowing them. Uh, and that really concerns me, especially in an, in an environment where we're so divided. Yeah, I mean, when I, 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 I well, just let me add one yeah. more thing here, Mickey. I think some of this is our fault because historians tend to write for each other. What we need to do is write more for the general public to uh, to understand. Uh, and, and I think if we can we can do that, we may be able to change some minds. I, I, I've had uh, sons of Confederate veterans come up to me after they read my book, America Aflame, uh, thanking me for the perspective I, I had. In there. But, but basically, the, the book states that both sides were responsible for the Civil War, and it should never have happened. And uh, the way we interpret the Civil War uh, with the North as the Republic of Virtue uh, and uh, the, uh, the the South uh, as uh, some kind of uh, hellish dictatorship uh, is way off the rails in, in reality. Uh, and uh, I wanted to emphasize the fact that the only war really that we should have fought was World War II. All the other wars were wars of choice. Well, growing up, uh, World War II was the end of American history for me. <laughs> I was born in 1970, so they didn't want to get into Vietnam. Uh, they didn't want to talk about the contentious nature of the 60s. Um, so, of course, you know, a teenager in the 80s, that's where my interest went, right? Is like, what? Why am I not allowed to know about this stuff? And that's actually what piqued my interest in history, really, in a lot of ways through journalism. And uh, I've always been interested in the intersections of the two. You know, journalism sometimes being called the first rough draft of history, and how does that translate into uh, what historians do? And I know we're running out of time, but I'm very curious as to how you see 
those intersections of history. And, you know, we could argue that today's fake news is tomorrow's fake history. So isn't it important for historians to be critically media literate? It's important for them to be critically minded. But it's also, as you just said, and I'm very glad to hear it, historians really need to write for the people. Um, they really need to be very savvy uh, creatures in a lot of ways that are expert in more than one area if they're able to navigate this sort of minefield of interpretation of the past for the present that will be utilized in the future. Just your thoughts on some of those those bigger ideas. Journalists are very important. They're very important in my research and they're very important uh, in in my writing uh, as well. Uh, the problem with uh, journalists, though, uh, is that they're really embedded in the time uh, and the the event. Recent issue of the uh, New York Times, uh, they had about um, seven or eight columnists write. That's not journalism. <laughs> well, well, they wrote mea culpa columns. Oh, yes. Where they said that, sorry, we were wrong. Yes. Uh, in, in writing about this, because as things un unfolded, it, it's very difficult to be historian of a contemporary uh, uh, event. I think their perspectives are good. You can use them, but you need uh, other forms of evidence. Well, and I think this is an important point that 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 talks about because I myself, as a journalist, am a, a history nerd. I'm not an, a, a a history academic like the two of you, but I think that it is important as journalists, which no one who works at the New York Times is a journalist, by the way. Um, I think it's important to incorporate the historic. Uh, a paradigm in your writing, because again, if you don't have the history, I, I usually liken it, like I use the metaphor, you're lost in the woods, which I think my father can relate to, because uh, he's lost everywhere. But <laughs> he has that stereotypical Jewish, I was lost in the desert for 40 years. Um, but like, you're lost in the woods, and history is your map. History allows you to have the map to show you where you were walking, and therefore it locate it geolocates you to your place in time. And it also allows you then to try and map the future of your path. And without that, you have no idea where you are, you have no idea where you've been, and you don't know where you're going. And so as a journalist, if you don't use history, then to me, you're not really, as Mickey pointed out, fully media literate, because you are not paying attention to your place in time. And that's why I think corporate media is so good at trying to remove all of that historical context, or really context in general, uh, and therefore why alternative journalists and alternative outlets are so vital uh, because of that. And I know that we're running out of time and I don't want to be like the typical um, child here having the last word. So David, is there anything that you'd like to add <laughs> that I, that we maybe didn't touch on that you can throw out there in a quick elevator pitch type of way? I think what we need to focus on uh, is to, the best way to educate students is to tell them what the truth is what the reality is. Just to give you a very quick, brief example, uh, I'm debating with uh, my uh, my publisher, Pearson, about the use of the word ghetto uh, to describe where black Americans lived in American cities. And they said, oh no, we're gonna use neighborhood or district. Well, okay, in that neighborhood, I mean, that 
that's neutral. District is neutral, but does not convey the living conditions in that one one word that demarks the black experience from, say, immigrant experiences. And, and I think that we need to use those words as shocking as they are, because without it, we're not going to understand where we came from and where we are today. Absolutely, uh, David Goldfield. Couldn't agree more. We we need to see the unvarnished, uncensored past in order to, to understand not just where we're from, where we are, and even imagine you know the possibilities of where we could be going or a better shape. As Peter Kuznick says at the beginning of The Untold History, he, he warns the readers that what's coming up may not be lovely or enjoyable, but without it, um, we really lack the capacity to create or imagine a better future. And I think historians really play such a, an important role in our society, and I'm biased here, obviously, um, but I think we need more historians speaking out publicly. We need more historians in public office, and it, we need to be more respectful of people trying to trying to tell the difficult stories that we need to hear to be better people. So thank you so much, David, for your contributions, um, to, not just to the discipline, but thanks for coming and spending time on on our program. It's been a delight. Thank you, Mickey. I'm, I've enjoyed it as well. You're listening to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. This is Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. We'll continue our program after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Thank you for joining us at the Project Censored radio show. We're very glad right now to be joined by Mirna Wabi-Sabi, who is an editor, writer, political theorist, teacher, and translator. She began her career as founder of the magazine Enemy of the Queen, based in Salvador, Brazil. Now she is founder, editor-in-chief, and director of Plataforma 9, based in Niteroi, Brazil, but active in North America, Europe, Southeast Asia, and Latin America. For most of her life, she travels the world, lived in Sao Paulo, New York, Amsterdam, and Salvador before returning to her hometown, Troy, in 2019. After witnessing the post-9-11 political climate as a young, young immigrant in the USA and Western Europe, Mirna's work began to orbit radical social change focused on addressing white capitalist patriarchy. Mirna, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. 
So you recently wrote an article uh, about the very overlooked yet serious issue of food waste, which uh, last year amounted to 4.4 billion tons of CO2. You write that's over four times the global emissions from flights in 2018, 87% of global road transport emissions, or 32.6 million cars worth of greenhouse gas emission in the U.S. alone. So first of all, can you talk about the difference between food waste and food loss, particularly with regards to media and or political talking points? Yeah, of course. Uh, The difference is that food loss happens in the process of food arriving at the table. So from production to storage and all the stuff that's wasted until the supermarket kind of thing. And waste is the kind of stuff that happens in our house. It's what we throw away that we don't eat and things that actually spoil in our fridge after we buy it. Right. And in terms of, you also make the point that uh, that one of those is discussed as problematic, whereas the other one isn't. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that and why you think that might be? Yeah, the part, uh, the political aspect of this is complicated because it's really difficult to write an article about this without falling in the trap of discussing individual responsibility for climate change, you know? And I absolutely don't want to fall in that trap. Uh, But waste is a big part of it. And I don't think it's necessarily a thing about individual responsibility because it is about a paradigm and how we consume food and how we sell food. A lot of um, grocery stores in Europe, but also in Brazil, used to just lock expired food away and not distribute food. There's this idea of um, the food industry being more about profit than about actually feeding people. So it's a global paradigm. It's not about individual responsibility. Yeah, and I appreciate you highlighting that because I think that there is, particularly in the U.S., there's this paradigm like, oh, if I just buy a Tesla and have reusable bags when I go to the grocery store, then we'll we'll eventually fix the problem. Um, And then on the other side of that coin, you have people shaming poor folks for not being able to, uh, you know, to access green capitalism. You also uh, talk about the stages of food production and point out that, for instance, producing meat gets a lot of attention as being super wasteful. For instance, 660 gallons of water for one burger. But the focus on household consumption gets a lot less attention. Um, And as part of this conversation, uh, there's the aspect of what households wear. And I I really appreciated in the article that you mentioned the intersections of poverty and carbon footprints. And uh, I was wondering if you could get a little bit more into that and how these issues uh, uh, combine. Yeah, so the issue of meat is massive in terms of production, deforestation in Brazil, because so much of land is used for cattle feed and soy and just burning to make pastures and stuff. So we talk about the issue of meat and it sounds like the meat we throw away that we don't eat as a small detail in the grand scheme of how toxic meat production can actually be to the environment. Uh, It's a small detail, but consumption is the reason why the industry exists, right? It's It's a cycle. Of course, there's demand being created. So there's a demand for meat being manufactured, which people uh, feel like they need to consume. But consu- like production is done to, for consumption. 
And what happens is when meat is wasted, so not only all the toxic aspects of meat production before it arrives at the table, after it arrives at the table and you actually throw it away in the garbage because, you know, you didn't finish it. It spoils quicker than everything else. It's much more dangerous to eat if it's not 100%, you know, fresh or, you know, so it can be wasted. It's not as wasted as a lot of other things, but the little bit of meat that is wasted is extremely toxic. It meets a lot more methane than, let's say, if you throw away tomatoes or potatoes. Um, and this is relevant mostly because it's not that often that we waste meat. And it's not everyone and everywhere that wastes meat like that. In Brazil, there's an, a, a small story that didn't make it to the article, to be honest. And it's a Brazilian story. And it was a little bit of a political issue to bring it in there. The photos of this article are taken in, um, in Brazil, in a favela called Maré. People in this favela don't feel that comfortable talking about it, going on record about their situation, you know. They don't like exposing themselves. There's an issue of drug traffickers, the militia, and calling attention, public attention, international attention to what they're going through can call the attention of uh, the government and that will get them in trouble with the militias. So it's a, it's a very sensitive issue. So there are things going on there that it's really difficult to talk about. And it's really difficult to talk about it without exposing them. So what happens is the supermarkets used to the supermarkets in this favela used to lock away food so people wouldn't go buy it. And what they why they do this is they don't want to lose money because they want people to buy the food. They don't want people to wait for the food to almost expire and get it for free. And this is something that needs to change. It's a culture. It's not individual responsibility, but it's a it's a widespread culture. And this changed in Brazil during the pandemic. What happened was. There were so many people struggling, especially in the favela, uh, that the supermarkets started actually distributing the food right before it was expiring. And I hope and we believe that this practice is going to continue. So what happened, these people go there also in butchers, they get rests of meat. So in places like Brazil, meat doesn't get wasted that often. And then these people take in their pictures of, you know, chicken feet, and the rests of meat. So in reality, there is no need for food waste. There's a need for, a, like, it's not a, a matter of safety, you know, like, oh, we have to make sure people are safe. So we have to waste this food because it would be irresponsible to share. No, it's irresponsible for us to not figure out a systemic way of handling food in general, right? And we can't just talk about production. It goes all the way to our kitchens and our garbage cans. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I remember to, I, I was talking to a friend who worked at uh, at a grocery store and she was saying that they, the grocery store will always order more than they know that they're going to sell because they want the shelves to look full because it's a look, it's an aesthetic. And I was like, it's an yeah. aesthetic. It's an aesthetic of <laughs> wasting bucket tons of food. Like that's absurd. And so there really is this, uh, a, a paradigm that needs shifting. And of course you mentioned chicken feet and a lot of people in the U S are like, Oh, I would, I would never eat that. That's gross. I only want the chicken thighs. And you're like, that's, yeah. you realize that's every chicken has a set amount of thighs. You can't just get like a chicken made out of thighs. Every, <laughs> like there, there are parts that need using. <laughs> it's yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the, the strange thing is there's really this belief that 
if we change this uh, behavior, that the, this industry is going to be less lucrative, right? So if we start thinking, you know, let's just distribute food, you know, then no one is going to buy food anymore. So how are we going to pay for food production? So that's not true. There's always going to be people who are going to want to buy the better parts of the meat or are going to want to buy what they want when they want it. And they don't want to have to wait for whatever is available, you know? And there is going to be an elite that's not going to give up this. What this really affects is people who can't afford food, who struggle. So it's not actually, I mean, not that I care so much about this industry's um, profits, but if we were considering this, you know, if we were taking into consideration, it wouldn't really make a dent in their profits that much. I don't want to make a capitalist solution for this problem because I think capitalism is a problem, I'm going to be honest. But if we were to think of a capitalist solution for it, this would be it. The top consumer is willing to pay more for convenience. And there is a way to just distribute food in a way that everyone has access to it. I mean, it's a basic resource, right? You're tuned to the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield with Mickey Huff. Now, back to our program. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it's kind of like healthcare or what I call sick care in the U.S. It actually costs more to keep it from people. And so just like when the pandemic hit in the U.S., there were, you know, there were pictures of farmers dumping thousands of gallons of milk because all of a sudden schools and restaurants didn't need the products. We are always going to struggle with rethinking society, right? I think we're so used to the way things work and, and supermarkets. Uh, I remember when I lived in, the, in Nijmegen, <laughs> this city in the Netherlands, I remember there was this, and the Dutch love being edgy, you know, with uh, especially art installations. And there was an art installation where they actually brought a cow and a pig to a supermarket and they did a kid's kind of thing where they showed every stage of food production. And a lot of kids realized that their food was actually coming from animals and they didn't realize they were eating cow or they didn't realize they were eating pig. And then a bunch of kids started crying and then they got sued and it was a whole thing like it was child abuse. <laughs> you know, we've become so far removed from what actually uh, food is. It's, it's not this packaged and, and placed and priced thing. Food is something else. And I'm from Brazil. And if there's one place in the world with the natural resources to feed its own people, it's Brazil. And yet we're one of the countries that have the most struggling uh, people, the most food insecurity. Brazil has so many resources. We can grow food. You know, there's no reason for a Brazilian to live off of you know, hot dogs. That's a German philosophy of food, you know? I've written an article about this many years ago too. Like we emulate the lifestyle and the diet of the North, which is why we burn our forests to grow cattle. Like we are in Germany in the 1800s, you know, and we, we, can't, we have to live off of potatoes and meat now. Like, what is this? We have mangoes and avocados growing wild. It's a colonial issue, first of all. We're emulating how food distribution has happened in other countries in, in American mode of distribution. Um, the food industry is, you know, uh, it's an industry from the stock market. It's not an industry of farmers. And we, have, we see this so clearly when 
you know, foods have so many, they're processed and they have so many preservatives. They're made to last forever in the shelves because that causes, that has more profit, right? It's more profitable and lasts longer. Um, but there's no need for food to be that processed. If we had a different style of distribution, right? Or raw materials and how many people don't even know how to make their own food and they, they buy prepared foods or they order food. So waste actually often comes from this, you know, meat waste, for example, takeouts, many like things you just like order takeout. There's a little bit left over, you leave it in the fridge. And then two days later, you don't want to eat it again. You throw it out. That's it. You think that it's just you doing it, but imagine a whole planet, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think the, the colonial aspect that you mentioned is really, uh, really important as well, because, you know, there's capitalism and then there's colonialism, the, the, the sort of, they're both psychological, uh, tumors, I would say. Um, but there's, there's also kind of this, especially with that story about your, it's, it's child abuse that also speaks to that colonial, this idea that people can be removed from the ecosystems that we rely on. Whereas in reality, you are doing children a service and people in general, when you make that connection to the food that nourishes us. And I think you should show kids how to pick carrots too, just how you, just like you would show them, Hey, this is a chicken. And then that ends up on your plate. And if that's creepy to you, let's talk about that. Like, but it's <laughs> yeah. way creepier to perpetuate this mindset that suggests that humans can exist outside of these ecosystems. Absolutely. We have this thing in Brazil where people try to sterilize environments. We're very nature rich, of course. It's a stereotype presuming their plants and you know their animals. But part of the colonial mindset is to sterilize everything. Just cut down the streets and put cement. And if you want, you can put a flower pot, you know? So you would, there are people who literally cut down fruit trees because they make things too dirty. The fruit falls, you know, and then attracts fruit bats and, and then it rots and it smells bad and you have to clean, you know? So they would rather just cut the plants and, and cement yards. It's insane. In my neighborhood, I've seen it. My family has lived in the same place for 30 years and I see I, my yard is one of the last ones with a tree, with the massive trees in, you just cut down systematically because you would rather cut it down because it's more of a status to buy it than to just eat wild, right? It's a very strange mindset. And for me, where you're talking about kids, you know, you can just like, let's talk about it with kids, you know, does that make people feel uncomfortable? How do people not know or we don't learn as kids what composting is? This is really interesting to me. There is a fear of composting. Oh, it's going to smell bad. It's going to have bugs and it's going to attract animals. And I don't know what these animals are and what they're doing. You know, um, we have a problem with mosquitoes in Brazil. Like you're trying to get rid of the bats, but you realize the bats eat mosquitoes. They're actually kind of nice. They eat fruit that's rotting that you want to, you know, you're annoyed by the presence of fruit (laughs) and mosquitoes and you want to get rid of the bats you know it doesn't make sense there's a complete disconnect with nature and what nature can actually do for us it's always something that we have to do with nature tame it control it or manipulate it yeah yeah and of course as you pointed out when you start trying to extract humans from nature push nature away then you ruin that cycle like the bats and the mosquitoes and then 
no wonder it's out of balance. And then all of a sudden you have a rise in whatever, you know, mosquito borne illnesses and things like that. So you did mention composting and I wanted to ask you because something that I really loved about this article that you don't often see in pieces that highlight a problem is that you list several ideas and solutions uh, and you open the conversation for, for other creative ideas. Can you talk about some other ways that you see that we could address this issue in the here and now, both personally and on larger community levels? It's really difficult to provide solutions and I've got to say, I have editors in Brazil. I have this article in Portuguese still to come out. It hasn't come out yet because I am still negotiating with editors exactly about this. They just want to cut that part out. Um, mostly because it's really difficult to provide solutions or especially like, specific solutions because we don't know those contexts, you know, and not everybody has the means to actually do something. A lot of people, you know, you don't have to do anything because you're not causing this problem, you know. It's a, it's a side of a control, which is why I say things like, if you have a kitchen, you know, for those of us who have a kitchen, we can, because not, not everybody who has a kitchen or if there is a kitchen in your life, it's not necessarily yours or you have domain over, you know. So it's really difficult to make suggestions that actually reach people and readers. But I know that my readers aren't um, extremely poor. Most of my readers have kitchens, they have homes, and they have, uh, it's within their domain to shop and cook for themselves. I know it sounds like, yeah, of course, but it's not, of course. A lot of, people, a lot of my subjects don't have that. A lot of the people I write about don't have that. So I have to acknowledge that who I'm writing for and who I write about are necessarily the same thing. So when I write about these issues, I am not writing about poor people. Oh, look how these poor people are struggling. No, I'm talking about, look at us. Look at us, the middle class. Uh, what are we doing? So it's really, if I highlight the specific experiences of people who struggle more than I do, it's only to highlight my own experience and the experience of people like me who are more privileged. The same thing with race. When I write about race, um, I don't write necessarily about blackness. I write about race in the sense of what, it, what does it mean to be white passing or white in, in this world, right? And of course, that relates to blackness and indigenous rights and all that. So I think it's really important for us to take this into consideration when we talk about what can we actually do? Like, who are you? Where are you in life, right? What, what is within your reach? And without feeling ashamed that you can't do more, you know, or feeling ashamed that you don't do enough because you have the means to do more. It's, it's really difficult to actually give solutions. So the solutions I tried to give in this one, because I had a little bit more editorial freedom, so I figured I'd put it there, uh, were things that were general enough. They're, they're not too specific. They're vague enough where people can play with or like, just a kind of inspiration. It's like planting a seed of inspiration. It's not really giving instructions. This is how you compost with cardboard, you know? Yeah. And I really like that you said that there's not like a, a specific how-to because I think that does reflect that people are living in different situations and different geographies and different class and social structures. And so making a blueprint doesn't make sense unless you're just talking to like one specific block or community. And I think that that's also really cool. The idea of how personal choices can 
can widen and and spread from there to make us question okay well how do we buy food and then also start questioning like how do how is food produced and so it becomes a social perspective that's shifted from just looking at your specific area or your specific food consumption a lot of i think a lot of capitalist things are always you know like there's the the national in the u.s there's like the national turn off your lights day which is so dumb um (laughs) oh yeah it's like everyone turn off your and it's like um and it's like well let's not talk about where we get our energy from coal and oil and natural gas let's just turn off i mean it's it's so dumb but it's like like, don't shower for a week or yeah it's like that kind of stuff like don't uh, save water but we're not going to talk about how fracking uses millions of fresh gallons of fresh water (laughs) um and so it's like that kind of stuff where it makes it sound like it's all on you and if we just turned off our lights more often then we would be fine it's much more of like a commentary. How can we start questioning these things in our own space and then move it outward to a systemic perspective as opposed to leaving it in that in our own little box? So I definitely yeah. appreciated that as well. We want to smash, crash, blast, smash, blast the system. We want to get it hype, get it live, get with the mission. We want the crowd loud, this pumping rhythm is hitting. And that does it for another episode of the Project Censored show on Pacifica Radio. I'm Eleanor Goldfield, co-hosting with Mickey Huff. For this episode, I've also been your associate producer, and Anthony Fest is our senior producer. Project Censored Radio airs on roughly 50 stations across the U.S., from Maui to New York. And you can find all our previous archived programs by going to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram just before we get deplatformed. And be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your digital tethering devices podcast application. Please feel free to contact us, share your feedback, or learn more about our work at projectcensored.org. And see our new publishing imprint, The Censored Press, at censoredpress.org. To learn more about my work or to contact me specifically, please visit my website at artkillingapathy.com. You can also follow me on social media at Radical Eleanor. Last but not least, thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in. We'll see you next time. <laughs>